Does that feel uncomfortable? All right, you're doing it right. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So today we're going to talk about some brainstorming topics, but first we need to talk about the Dota tournament we went to a couple of weeks ago. So James, why don't you give us your first impression? So I think as weird as to say, the best moment for me was just walking inside the arena because it's an 18,000 person stadium. It's a sold out crowd. And it was maybe the first time in my life I got to see visualized that there are other people that care about this thing (laughs) that I have been interested in since I was a kid. And it was also nice for a moment anyways, to think that I was part of something that's actually popular (laughs) because (laughs) we're so used to freestyle. We're always just on the edge of survival. But with all that said, I do think there's lots of discussion in Dota right now about whether it's surviving or whether it's doing well, which I always want to roll my eyes because they have half a million people playing it every single month. But the prize pool used to be $50 million and this year it was $3 million. And some of that was an effort to kind of move out the prize pool. So it wasn't all in one tournament. It was in multiple, but they're definitely in crisis mode. But anyways, putting aside Dota's problems, it was nice to just be in a huge crowd of people and think I have no responsibility for this. This will survive without me. (laughs) It's doing great. These people love it. Everyone in that room spent $800 to be there. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine a freestyle tournament? We get 18,000 people to pay $800 to go watch it for 14 hours a day, every day for three straight days, which is the other completely crazy thing about it. But it was super fun. What'd you think? Yeah, it was great. The stadium was so beautiful on the inside. Like it was a water theme this year and everything was like stained glass themed and like they like put posters up everywhere so it kind of looked like you're underwater and all the screens going around there's like 360 degrees of screens like there was two rain it was like a donut and a donut hole like the donut hole had screens on it and also the rim of the donut had screens and everything was kind of synchronized together the production value was so high and everyone was super nice i wasn't sure if the demographic of the Dota worlds is going to fit within kind of my worlds as the, you know, counterculture freestyler <laughs> that I am, but everyone was super cool. It was a great event. It had a little bit of freestyle vibes where you could see the best players just walking around the stadium. <laughs> and we got to say hi to some people. And at least I totally fanboyed out and had a great time seeing these superstar Dota players. But one thing I got to note, I think I'm too old for it. We were sitting in a stadium. Definitely the first day we were there over 12 hours and there was no (laughs) assigned seating. And you probably would have done a better job of just putting your stuff down and wandering around and having faith. But me being the anxious person that I am, I pretty much had us staked out at our seats the entire time. (laughs) And we had like a rotation to go to the bathroom and whatnot. But it was extremely intense. I mean, even last night, my wife and I went and saw a Broadway show that came through in town and even two and a half hours of sitting in a theater seat, I find extremely uncomfortable, but it was definitely a marathon how much Dota we endured for three straight days. Yeah, it was definitely a different experience than when we watch it at home. And yeah. like the, the breaks are way less convenient 
in the stadium than it is like at your house for some reason. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not enough time to go be free and leave and come back, but it's too much time that you're sitting there just waiting for the <laughs> next thing to happen. And I don't think the typical stadium hype time killers are really my cup of tea. I was definitely a little bored by the kind of fan commentary interaction, but the games were super fun to watch. And I had a really good time with that. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome too, because I don't really play anymore and (laughs) only really played seriously 16 years ago, however long it was. So the, the first people we met were like, who do you main? And I didn't even know what the question meant. I just started going like, uh, uh, and luckily you stepped in and answered the question for us. And we got a little bit of cred and I felt <laughs> comfortable again, but I did. That was basically the first thing that happened. We walked in. I was like, Oh no, I'm completely out of my element here. But the other crazy thing for me is I'd have to do the math, but I was, I was playing probably in like 2001 or 2002 so, okay, it's like more than 20 years ago that I was playing. And in a lot of the fan interaction stuff that they did, they'd ask people how long they've been playing or when they first heard about TI or went to TI or saw TI, which is the tournament we went to. And the most I heard was like nine years ago, 10 years ago. I eclipsed everyone in that room in terms of how long ago I started doing it, even though I was probably among the least experienced people there in terms of knowing about the game and how it worked. So it's definitely a little bit of barbelling there of being probably the oldest Dota player in the entire arena, but being the least familiar with the game. Yep. Do you know when I knew you were super excited is when you instigated a selfie after we got our jerseys. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of things that I don't normally do or think of myself as doing. But yeah, not I mean, first I took us straight to the fan shop and we bought gear. <laughs> then we took a bunch of selfies. And every time we saw a famous Dota player, I was like, Ryan, don't move. And I would manufacture some circumstance where I could say good game or good job or just say hi. So I was all in. I mean, I just, I felt so free to just be a completely, I don't know, like I was the, the, I was the lowest rung of the totem pole there. And there's a certain degree of fun and freedom that comes with that. And I just had a, I had a blast with that. I also think if I rank the top five most incredible sports-like performance moments I've ever seen in my life, one of them was at the tournament when Yartoro did the basically fountain <laughs> dive. Couldn't describe it on this podcast in a way that anyone would understand, but I think we basically saw one of the best human feats that has ever been performed. Yeah, every international has that one moment where they won the tournament. That was like the moment for me. <laughs> it was so incredible. I don't even know what the freestyle equivalent would be, but it was absolutely unbelievable to see people and there's also like one other element and i know like hardly anyone cares about this but whatever it's our podcast nobody listens anyways is it seems to me at least and again like i know the least about this here that a lot of the players are at the top and there's not a huge difference between them they're all just supremely good but it does seem like there's one player who just stands 
head and shoulders above everyone else and he played <laughs> like it and it was so crazy to watch game after game after game i mean again like 12 hours a day of dota and everything felt very tightly matched and all the players just seemed equally good but then every time this one guy played Yatoro, he was so good and you got to see the players kind of faces and demeanor while they were playing and that was definitely interesting and something you and I talked a lot about when we were watching it. But for instance, the best player was just so relaxed the entire tournament. <laughs> just like, didn't even really look like he was trying that hard. And there was just a few times because the players play in these glass glass boots where you could see one team have a very particular emotional tenor versus the other team. And it wasn't always obvious what the right kind of emotion was so like i remember we watched one matchup i think it was like liquid versus game and gladiators and i think it was liquid looked kind of appropriately stressed and had kind <laughs> of like a real intensity in their faces and game and gladiators looked extremely relaxed but perhaps too relaxed and i was thinking to myself i don't know which of those is the better option would i rather be stressed or relaxed and i think there's an argument for both i think <laughs> We've talked before about optimal levels of stress, which is definitely a psychological topic that people study and seem to think it's really good. But as one thing that we'll talk about later today, there's a lot of value also in having a high degree of relaxation. But it was really, it was really cool to see, fun to watch something that had a lot of stakes, but is still small enough that was very approachable. Were there any lessons you took from it that? you would want to apply to how we run freestyle events. I think I've, we've already tried all the things. <laughs> yeah. Cause I've, I've, this is the second time I've been to the international. And when I saw it, then I was like, all right, we gotta, here's the things it's like stay on schedule. So the live stream is good. And yeah, I don't think we have the manpower to do the parts that really make it like shine, like all like you don't really like all the in-between bits, but like that is so like how that one segment where they're like, who would you ban? Because like normally you ban heroes, but they're like if you could ban a player and everyone said Yatoro, like that was such a bonding moment in the arena. Like we don't have things like that. That's fair. I actually did like the, I don't know what you'd call it, like produced in-between content and we'd love to see that in freestyle. So by produce content, I mean between games, there would be these videos that they clearly put together and put thought into where they had little games or storylines or whatever. And they were really effective for getting you excited about the games and also getting to know the teams, especially if you didn't know as many of the players and a lot of their personalities came out. So that kind of thing I would love to see in freestyle. It's obviously just really hard to do. I mean, for instance, for Worlds even... You'd have to get there days in advance. You'd have to have a lot of the players get there well in advance. <laughs> and you have to interview all these people, cut the things together, and then show it at the tournament. But I think it's something that's possible. I think I think it's something I can imagine myself doing now that I'm not competing. But it would be, yeah, it would be a lot of work. But that part was really cool. And like I've said, I think really early on in the podcast, I think anytime you can create stories that people can attach to on sort of a human level for lack of a better word it mm -hmm. elevates the entire experience so i felt like i got a sense of every player's personality 
that we watched compete and even teams I didn't know very well, very quickly, I thought, I like that person. I don't like that person. I want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. And once everyone gets invested in that way, it creates a much stronger communal experience. Because I do think, especially with COVID and just me not being a big sports person in general, even though I talk about the NBA all the time, but I haven't been to a lot of sporting events before, but there is a big magic to having a crowd experience and having basically 18,000 people responding to the same thing that you're responding to with the same kind of emotion, which is <laughs> so powerful. I think I almost cried like five times in the event just because there's something really moving about that happening. And I also think Dota is kind of odd because normally if you go to a sporting event, it's one team versus another team and you probably have, you know, half the crowd for one team, half the crowd for other team, whatever. But here there was, I guess there's only eight teams at the stage that we were at, but there wasn't an, there wasn't always an obvious affinity of the crowd. The crowd was split among all the different teams. And most people that we talked to had, these are the four or five teams that I like. So it was, there wasn't kind of the same cutthroat divisions that you normally see. And there was a few things that you would expect. So, you know, there was one North American team, which is probably the worst team there. They did better than I think anyone thought they would, but they obviously had a big, a, a lot of support because it was in the U.S. But there was also this interesting thing where there was almost two completely separate crowds at the tournament, the <laughs> everyone crowd and then like the China crowd. And the reason oh, yeah. I we know this is because, you know, at one point when two Chinese teams were playing, they had these coaches interviews where the Chinese coaches would come out, speak in, I assume, like Mandarin or whatever they were speaking. And before it was translated, you know, 90% of the crowd would start laughing or cheering or whatever. And I was like, oh, like everyone here at this particular moment, because it's the two Chinese teams playing, understands this language. And you could, you know, kind of just tell that the demographics would shift a lot based on which teams were playing. But it was pretty cool. Like, I wonder how many tickets they sold for the event and how many 18,000 you think but you think because they obviously can't sell more than that because probably the finals i mean it was really full the finals day Mm -hmm. but it was interesting just that like there were times where it felt like huge groups of crowds moved in and out based on what teams were playing but it always felt relatively full but i guess even Mm -hmm. 60 percent full feels really full i don't know it was just kind of interesting but there were definitely times where I was like, it was me, you, and everyone around us was speaking Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was cool. And you could tell one thing I liked a lot based on the in-between content was you could tell a lot like in freestyle, the players were very collegial. Everyone seemed to be friends with each other <laughs> yep. and everyone was very respectful of each other. And there was also one thing that I really liked which maybe is a bad product because I know if you look at like wrestling or boxing, they try to do the opposite of this. But, you know, whenever they would be interviewing people and they'd say like, are you going to win this one? And, you know, normally just be like, yeah, we're going to destroy them. They're always like, well, like, I hope we do our best. Like, we're just, they're really good. So, you know, it's just, you never know what's going to happen. Everyone was just so relaxed. There's definitely one coach in particular for one of our favorite teams liquid who every time they try to get him to be like yeah we're gonna win he's like i don't know i think they're better than us <laughs> but yeah <laughs> uh, i i really like that aspect of it because i feel like freestyle can be a little bit like that so anyways if you got this far through all the dota talk thank you but 
you know, at a certain point, we're basically a sports and psychology podcast. So let's move on to our next topic, unless there's anything else you had about the Dota worlds. No, nope. <laughs> we can move on. Okay. So we don't have too much today. Again, we're kind of in the dead season of freestyle, but I read this book last week called The Inner Game of Tennis. And I'm trying to think of a good analogy for what the experience was like. But the takeaway I have from it is everything we've ever talked about in terms of becoming a better freestyler and having a growth mindset and how to learn was in the 1971 book, The Inner Game of Tennis. I don't remember exactly when this book came out. I could probably look it up right now. Um, It came out in 1974. So this is a really old book and it's about tennis. And I kept hearing about it through random people and random places. And I thought it was strange the number of people I had encountered that talked about a game, sorry, that talked about a book seemingly about tennis, even though I don't know that many people play tennis. And I was like, what is it about this tennis book that everyone thinks is so important? So I read it and this book just crushes everything we talked about before anyone knew about it. So for instance, like this is the most growth mindset book I've ever read that's predating the growth mindset. This book has a ton about non-judgmental learning. You know, we talked about like clicker mm-hmm. training and clicker mm-hmm. training is a much newer idea, I think. And yet like those kinds of concepts are in this book. And then one thing that we'll end today on is this brainstorming session. There was a lot of how to play tennis content in the book as well. And I thought I would be skipping over that, but I found myself reading it very closely because it felt really relevant to freestyle. So I'll come back to that. But here are kind of like the main takeaways from the book, some of which are more interesting than others. So the first one, which rightly or wrongly, I was not quite as excited about, even though I think this is right, is the book talks about having two selves. You have kind of your self that is performing the actions, sort of like the freestyle for okay. player. And then you have your kind of subconscious psychological self that's you know playing the game and this is sort of mm-hmm. the what i think you like to call like the mental game and yep. the goal is to kind of align these two selves because a lot of times they're at war with each other you know you know especially if you take disc golf you know how to put it into the basket but there <laughs> becomes there a lot of times people have this dissonance between what they know how to do physically and what they're able to do with their mind and so like that's kind of a big picture point of the book. And then a lot of it is, well, how do you bring those selves together? And I probably, I'm going to oversimplify a lot of this and get some of it wrong. So if you're a big inner game of tennis person out there, hang on. Also, quick aside, Emma was in town this last week. We had a great jam and I only bring it up because Emma and I are on the same book wavelength. <laughs> like I did, <laughs> like we were obsessed with this breathe book. And when she came, I was like, you know, I just read this book and I know you're going to have read it. And I just said the inner game and she just like completely lit up and could tell that she <laughs> loved this book. Okay. So the next couple of things, and I'm like looking at kind of the synopsis of the book to make sure I don't miss anything. Like one of the next things is kind of like what I think was like the clicker training idea, which is, kind of non-judgmental awareness and non-judgmental learning. And this is, I think, actually something that I struggle a lot with on an unexpected side. So we all play for Z. We're always saying, like, great job. Like, that's Hane. That's really good. That's that's positive. We're probably pretty good about not being like, that's terrible. Don't do that. Like, you're bad. But, like, according to this book and a lot of scientific literature, 
all of that's bad. Even the good stuff, even saying like, <laughs> good job. That's great. You're, you're, you're doing awesome. That stuff for whatever reason has this really detrimental effect on learning and the way the book kind of explains it, which goes into a topic we talked about before, like intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is when you put even positive emotional spins on people doing something correctly, it kind of changes how they approach doing it. That makes sense. It like, puts you in a fixed mindset. I yeah, guess. exactly. So that's, yeah, that would be one easy way to put it. It puts you in a fixed mindset where you're like, when I do it right, I'm good. When I do it wrong, I'm bad. So, you know, another way to think about it is you can't have one without the other. If you're telling someone, hey, you did that right, that's good. The negative implication of that is when they don't do it correctly, that's bad. Mm-hmm. So even if you're only giving them positive feedback, now when they mess it up, because they're learning, they're going to mess it up, they feel that negative feedback, even if you're not giving it to them, because you've set this good versus evil world in their head, even if it's subconscious, that's hard for them to break out of. So definitely for teaching, because one of the things I was interested about the book is it's written by a tennis teacher and has a really strong teaching bent to it. And, you know, he talks a lot about just when he's teaching people, he tries to just describe what they're doing and not put any emotional tender to it. So it's sort of in tennis, it's easy to just be like, okay, that ball was out and that's it. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of how to do that kind of thing in freestyle, but it's still so hard not to just be like, good job. That's great. And mm-hmm. it just feels weird to sit there emotionless. But one thing he talked a lot about in this book was just saying less which I know this is going to sound oh, it's perfect for me. <laughs> yeah. I know this is sound crazy <laughs> coming from me, but I actually think one reason we have been successful at Duke is we don't say very much. Like there isn't a lot of teaching past the first day. Like we have the Duke method. And then pretty much after that, we just play. And if people ask me questions, I show them what to do, but I try not to tell them how to do things. Now, I'm going to talk about things that I think I do wrong that I learned from this book. But one thing I read, I was like, okay, like I think inadvertently we've been doing that and that's been working. And there's a great analogy in the book about this, which is when a baby's learning how to walk, no one tries to teach it. They're just like, <laughs> let it let it go. It'll figure it out. Yeah. And it sort of described that as being an optimal learning environment, even for wow, complex okay. tasks. So I think that just changed me just now. Right? Isn't <laughs> yeah. that so powerful? <laughs> yeah. So that's, I'm going into that mindset going forward a lot. I mean, they talk about for some things, especially really like non-obvious things, you can kind of plant the seed, which I think is kind of what we do with the Duke method of like, here's what I'm doing. I will show it to you. But after that, just go, you'll figure it out. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Um, so I really, I really like that idea. And he had a lot of kind of anecdotes about teaching people and he pointed out something that I think is also really interesting, which is a lot of times we know what we're doing wrong and yet we ask people for help, like they can do anything about it. So he talks a lot about how people are like, <laughs> Oh, you know, my backhand's messed up. I, I don't take my racket back far enough. What do I need to do? It's like, well, you need to take your racket further back. You just told me what you need to do. <laughs> and this teacher describes how he would basically just, sit there and be like, okay, like just keep doing it and wait for them to fix it themselves. And <laughs> everyone would always be like, you're such a genius teacher. Like, how do you do it? And you'd be like, what have I actually told you? Nothing. Like you figured this out on your own. So I really like that. I want to implement it more. 
But I talked about it in one of our early episodes. It's still a little bit of a struggle because I need people to have fun. So there has to be a certain degree of good job camaraderie, I think, but not because I'm trying to get you to learn faster, but because I'm trying to get you to have a good time. But of course, that is in a little bit of tension with what I just said about, well, if I give you those good emotions, when you do bad, it's going to come with the negative no matter what I do. Mm-hmm. So it you might have... like, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, you need like dedicated learning time where you don't get good jobs. Yeah, and then maybe it's also just explaining to people early on, like, here's <laughs> how we do things here. We think it works well. Don't take it as, you know, we don't care or we're all just automatons. But I also think what you just said is a great idea too, which is just splitting the times because a lot of freestyle is kind of the joking around having fun aspect. And I think it would be weird to be in silent jams of all non-judgmental <laughs> learning, but yeah. we'll, we'll figure it out. So the next one, which I was so obsessed with and so happy that this was in the book and it actually better articulated a point I was trying to make in one of the podcasts in the last week or two, which is the power of visualization but it was the power of visualization in a couple unexpected ways that we haven't talked so much about. So one thing he did a lot with tennis players who, you know, would say over and over and over again, you know, I'm doing X wrong. And he would just put them in front of a mirror and just say, like, do your backhand, do your back, just do it over and over and over again. And he wouldn't tell them what to do. He would just put them in front <laughs> of a mirror and they'd often fix all their problems or you know, they would say like, oh, I really am doing X wrong. And it's like, okay, you were saying it all these years, but you didn't really (laughs) internalize it until you saw it. So this idea of visualization was really emphasized as being the best way to help people learn. And part of that was like, I always talk about seeing yourself play, why I'm like so obsessed with filming, just watching yourself play really highlights what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And you're seeing it and it really kind of gets somewhere deeper in you that helps you learn faster. But another thing, and this is what I was trying to get at last week or a couple of weeks ago is the power of seeing other people do what you're trying to do. And I was talking about this in the context of Will and saying in a somewhat self-congratulatory way, I think part of why Will is getting better is he watches <laughs> me play all the time. But what's more interesting to me is that I think I'm getting better because I'm watching Will play all the time. And one thing that I was talking with Emma about is that there are moves that I worked on on and off for a decade and never really got the hang of. And then as soon as Brendan or Will learns how to do it, you know, a week later, I can do it. And (laughs) this also, I think, goes back to the baby walking analogy. Like babies are just living in a world where they're seeing people do what they're supposed to do. They watch it, internalize it, and just work towards that on their own. And I think that has a lot of power in freestyle. And it's also kind of the lead by example theory of the world. So playing the right way and doing the right thing not only helps you, but it's helping everyone else around you learn. And Hmm. it's that much more important to build your freestyle community because it like everything makes everybody (laughs) better. Um, and that, like, I, I feel like, like it. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's one of the most optimistic things about it. So, you know, we Wait, talk, I have a question. Hit me. <laughs> Does it say anything about the book about coaching? Can you coach yourself like using all these methods or do you need someone to tell you 
these things. What do you mean? I mean, it was definitely less about how to learn yourself. I mean, it was it's kind of interesting that you asked it that way because it didn't really frame it in any particular way. It definitely had a teaching focus because he was a teacher and not necessarily like a star player. But clearly the book was meant for people that were learning how to play tennis. So I think you were supposed to internalize a lot of these things. But I would imagine just thinking out loud that it has a little bit of a growth mindset thing where just knowing about these concepts, Mm -hmm. you can implement them relatively easily and quickly. It's not like, you know, trying to lose weight or something where you can know what to do, (laughs) but it doesn't really help you because it's still really hard and your body's going to fight you. You could just understand the growth mindset and immediately see the impact (laughs) of that. And I think a lot of these are kind of growth mindset type things and really just like having the concepts in your head should be able to help you. But in terms of like what you're supposed to do for yourself, I do think you can have a non-judgmental learning pattern yourself. Obviously you can, instead of saying like that was good or that was bad or getting frustrated with yourself or even getting too happy with yourself when you do things right, you just, it's almost like you learn if you've ever spent time on the, any number of new age meditation apps. If it's like (laughs) noting, it's just like, I went for this new catch and the disc was too far to my left. Just like describing what happened without any emotional valence can lead you towards the right place. And there was a little bit about going kind of to the two selves, how sometimes you almost need to limit your bandwidth to something so that, you know, the things that are leading you astray can't get into your brain. So this is better explained through an analogy and I'll use a tennis analogy because it's easier. A lot of times he tells people, just focus on the seams of the ball. Like, don't worry about how you're trying to hit it. Just look at the seams. And and a lot of times when people do that, suddenly they start hitting it correctly because the focus on the ball is kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Like pushing out all the other nonsense that's getting in the mm-hmm. way. And there is definitely this element, which I think we've all experienced, which is the more you try to do try to fix the one thing you're doing wrong, the harder it is to actually do it. So sometimes you have to kind of trick yourself into being in a state of relaxed concentration, <laughs> focusing on this one thing to let all the other elements come through. And especially now that you, so yeah, well, one last part about like, especially okay. if you take the baby walking analogy, just having trust that the problems you're having with whatever it is will fix themselves, like focus on whatever the disc and <laughs> let the other elements of it come slowly and naturally. Now that you say that there's like a whole bunch of other questions. So the first thing is I have seen a video of this person before at work. It was like some like learning series and it was like the tennis guy. And he was like doing the thing where it's like, just focus on the seams. And he made like a clear cut, like you're going to try and do this 10 times in a row. We're going to see how many succeed at. And it like, drastically increased after like they just focus on that one thing. Yeah. And when I watched that, I was like, does that actually help long-term? Because when you're playing tennis in real life, you're not just focusing on the seams. You need like a bunch of other things in your brain. And I'm like, does that actually build the habit or does it, is it like a pony, like a party trick? See, that's interesting. I certainly don't have an empirical answer of the tip of my fingers here, but another kind of psychological concept that I feel like this book intuited is flow and the flow state. 
and talking a lot about kind of that optimal level of stress and relaxation that enables you to perform really well. And it kind of opens up talking about how whenever we do or perform very well, we have a certain kind of vocabulary of I was unconscious or I don't even remember what happened or, you know, one minute the round started, the next minute it was over. And I think when you're performing at the highest level, kind of all those extraneous thoughts are out of your head and you are just completely focused on whatever it is. And so I think this focusing on the seams of the ball analogy is in some ways kind of training you to do that or almost forcing you into a mini flow state so that you can get more comfortable being in that state or at least getting into that state. And, but I don't know, like it's a good question to think, could it come back to haunt you or at the very least, I always like what you said earlier, splitting up your time and focus. <laughs> like sometimes you need to, like, I think especially at the beginning, you need to focus on, okay, here are the three or four things, just describe them that I need to do to execute this move. Now mm-hmm. that I've thought about that and maybe kind of slowly try different elements without the disc, now I'm going to try to go into unconscious mode and just practice this. But it's definitely a thing that I've experienced, which is you get better things without thinking about it. Just one day you're like, Hey, like my plumbing <laughs> guidance is really good now. I don't know when it happened. I wasn't thinking about getting better extension in my legs, but it just happens. Now the reverse is true too. I see people where I'm just like, that's a bad habit. You're never going to fix that, I guess. <laughs> oh, there was this great idea. This, I don't know if the science backs us up, um, which I'm not saying because I have any skepticism. Well, I guess I have a little bit because I remember reading the habit book, like, many, many years ago. And it talks about how hard it is to break a habit, but it had a really good idea for that, which is they call it grooving. So like, instead of trying to break a habit, you think about a habit being like grooves in a record or something. He says, just start a new groove. Just like, don't try to fix the groove you already have. Just start a new one. And I really like that idea. Like, okay, my guidance is broken. I'm not going to guide us anymore. I'm going to learn a brand new move where my right <laughs> arm goes under my left leg and I catch the disc. Like, so I was just thinking about starting over so that your old habits don't break, break the thing that you're trying to accomplish. But I thought that was just a really a cool idea, but I have no idea if that, that works or not. Um, one other thought about this focusing on the seam of the ball issue, which brings me quick aside to my MBA update which is Victor Wimanyama. I can't remember if I've talked very much about him on the podcast, but he's only played a few games now. The season just started. So this is the number one draft pick in the NBA who, and just one of the great things in my life, ended up on my basketball team, the San Antonio Spurs, which itself is very crazy because the Spurs have drafted three Hall of Fame level best players of all time with the number one draft pick in the last 20 years. We just get so lucky. Uh, Victor Umanyama is seven foot four, which for our, you know, European listeners is 2.235 meters. He's <laughs> a giant and I've been watching him play basketball and, you know, he's 19 years old. He's a rookie, but already the consensus is that he will probably be the greatest basketball player of all time. I probably come off as a much bigger sports and NBA fan on this podcast than I really am. Maybe once a week I watch part of a game. I want to get back into watching it more. But when I watch Victor Wembanyama play, my wife will tell you I am like squealing every 10 minutes because he does <laughs> something that I've never seen anyone do before. 
you've never seen a person like this. It's not even close. It's just he makes the other giants in the NBA look tiny, but he moves like Steph Curry. It just it's it's actually crazy. Do yourself a favor and just look up Victor Wimbanyama on YouTube and watch it. But back to the main topic, I was thinking about him because I was watching some filler content for the NBA games. They were showing him training and while he's practicing shooting, his trainer is asking him random questions like what's the <laughs> capital of this place? Like what's the square root of 64? Just all these completely random questions. <laughs> and I have no idea what the theory behind that is. And when I was reading the inner game of tennis, I was wondering if it was either trying to distract you to kind of train you to overcome distractions. And he was answering the questions while he was doing this, or is it kind of a, getting out the distractions by you can't be worried about your shooting mechanics if you're figuring out the square root of 64 you know so i was very curious about that but given that he's probably the most valuable athlete in the world right now i think that's like very possible someone smart probably decided that that was a good thing to do (laughs) to train him how to play basketball the only other funny aside about victor womanyama is there's been all these videos of other teams training in preparation to play him. And what they're doing is they put someone in front of the basket and they have like, imagine like number one fake foam hand arms, like, <laughs> and they just like hold them up so that they're giants, like practicing blocking <laughs> shots. It just looks like a cartoon character standing in front of the basket. So that's been very exciting. But I was, when I was watching that training, I thought, okay, like, I wonder if what the idea behind that is. Um, okay. So the last thing I can think of from the ender game of tennis, which is very growth mindset was, but it kind of like either reminded me of something about the growth mindset or added a new dimension to it, which is kind of like combining the non-judgmental learning with the growth mindset of, and taking that approach to winning and losing. I'm just like, it's not only growth mindset, you know, losing is opportunity to grow or really everything's an opportunity to grow, but like that should be your default when you're dealing with the emotion of losing, but then adding this non-judgmental aspect of just like, it does not matter whether I win or I lose. It's just noting. It's just, Oh, like I dropped it and got an execution error or I hit that big move and I got all those points, but not putting any kind of emotional valence to it, which I really liked. But then I also like this idea, which I think I'm going to take to my future children. And I hope my wife doesn't, (laughs) become too appalled by this and just like you should always give people your all because you're helping them it's like if you truly believe in the growth mindset you should always crush your opponent when you're able to (laughs) so they can learn from it yeah i I wish i could tell this last anecdote in the book you had about it but it was like i was like so convinced i was like oh yeah like you're doing something really dishonest to somebody if you're not challenging them in whatever way it is and Mm -hmm. like another way i was thinking about that is especially like will i shouldn't make it easy for him at all it's sort of like just (laughs) here's 10 times more upside down counter like here here's just all the ways to make jamming a little bit harder for you because ultimately that is what's going to be that's what's going to make you a lot better yeah that's like when the villain in the anime it's like I'm going to use my super move to defeat you because you're so good. (laughs) It's like you want to push the person to use all of their 
I almost think it's like mm-hmm. the superhero trope of you know your nemesis is your greatest asset and you're sort of nothing without them and like i've certainly felt that a lot and i sort of talked about that somewhat recently i think about how you know with a few years or which were the worst freestyle years i think i had but like most of the time i've been a freestyler there's been some rising star that really pushed me to be a better player and that was super valuable and in the absence of that i really struggle to just be motivated to keep getting better. And like now that sort of will. So having somebody that kind of like challenges your station and freestyle is the best thing that can happen to you because it's going to make you better at it and kind of learning to feel a lot of like gratitude for that. Like I need more <laughs> mortal enemies, you know, to become a better frizzy player. So I don't know. There's a lot of, Good thoughts. It's a really short book, by the way, if anyone wants to read it, Enter Game of Tennis. Highly recommend. But kind of transitioning to our last topic, which I don't think we'll spend too much time on, but there was a lot of tennis in the book. And some of the tennis I thought was relevant to something that you and I've been talking a lot about that we wanted to talk about on the podcast and kind of a new segment idea, which is called brainstorming <laughs> for now, anyways. <laughs> and it won't surprise you that brainstorming segment is basically where you and I blither, which is the yep. whole podcast, but whatever. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about how to throw more spin. And I don't know. I don't even know where to start. Like, I guess an interesting starting point for me is that it seems like lots of people have very different throwing techniques, but they get to the same place, which on the one hand is sort of encouraging. If you have something that works for you, there's probably, there might not be a better way. There might be lots of great ways. On the other hand, it's frustrating because I want to know how should I throw it? (laughs) And I can't just look at one method and say, that's the right way. But there's a couple things in the inner game of tennis that I think is relevant to us. One is he talks about how the, you know, in tennis, the, you know, preferred right way to hit the ball has changed over time. And at least you know, this is books really old now. So maybe all this is no longer still true. But at least at the time of the book, he said, now there's two main methods and no one's sure which one is right. They might both be right. And they are actually completely the opposite (laughs) of each other, which really resonated with me because it's sort of like, okay, like you're, I can't remember the details. One, it's like you step forward with your forehand. The other one is you step back. I'm like, those are the opposite. And yet somehow, <laughs> like, they both might be right. So, you know, that was interesting to me. But then, too, there was just kind of some basic mechanics. Because if you think about it, hitting a tennis ball has a very similar, like, movement as throwing it. You're really mm-hmm. whipping with a lot of, you know, spin. Like, they want to get spin on the ball, just like we want to get spin on the disc. And I think they use similar techniques. And one of the few things that I sort of took away from it which I've been struggling a lot with myself and I've gotten a lot of mixed advice about this is there is some optimal level of grip or like strength that you apply like tension versus relaxation, but no one knows what it is and there's never going to be a way to describe it, (laughs) which (laughs) kind of makes sense because you can't be like, just hold it seven tight. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) Um, Because I've heard freestylers and I wonder what you've experienced with this. Some people tell me, tight, tight, tight grip as hard as you can and lots of like strength and tension in your arm to get the spin, which kind of makes a lot of sense to me. But then there's lots of other people who tell me, no, like super relaxed, 
just snap. Use the relaxation and looseness to snap. I think there is a right answer here, or there's like a a best answer. Uh, This is where I was going to start. We've been brainstorming. So what's your thought here? I think the best method is relaxed. And the reason I say that is from, okay, so I'm going to use some like, I think disc golf is a lot farther ahead in the science than freestyle is because they just like have more money and there's more people playing disc golf. And Mm -hmm. one thing they say in disc golf is, it's not how hard you throw, it's how fast you throw that makes your distance go up. Yeah. And so the same thing for the freestyle throw. I think this one's pretty easy to internalize where it's not how much muscle you're putting into the throw, it's like how fast your hand is moving when you throw it. And it's not even the strength, it's the leverage you're putting on the disc. So it's like a complex bunch of like pivots and levers going on with your elbow, shoulder, and wrist. And for those levers to work, everything can't be tight. So it has some pieces have to be loose at the right time. So like take advantage of the lever, the leverage of the lever. And so you want your grip to be loose until the moment where it needs to be tight. And like think about like squeezing something. So like let's say Mm -hmm. you have like a meter, you're squeezing it. Do you think you can squeeze it if you squeeze it slowly up into your max or if you like relax and then like squeeze it all at once? Do you think you're going to get a higher number? Like which one of those? I think it's going to be relaxed and then squeeze. Right. And so that's where you would optimize your throwing technique. I agree, but I feel like it depends on the kind of action I'm doing. (laughs) I think, for instance, like if I were pushing against a wall, I could put more force on it by pushing with like an Mm -hmm. explosive force and trying to slowly push into it. But I actually think your squeeze analogy is the opposite. Like, I don't know if I could just like squeeze instantly, but I don't know who knows, but I think I agree with you. And this is a change for me. So I think for the last few years, I've been trying out having a lot of tension in my arm to throw more spin. And then I think that, I think that definitely elevated my throw a lot, but I think the next level for me is to introduce a lot more looseness and lately, my inspiration has been Dirty Harry from Berlin, who to me has the best pound for pound throw. Uh, <laughs> this guy's got to weigh like 120 pounds. He just is, he just th- throws more spin than anyone I know with the least amount of effort. It just, mm-hmm. he doesn't even look like he's throwing it hard. So I look at that and I think, okay, that's probably a model that could work for anybody. So, like, maybe. Someone like Benno throws more spin. I have no idea. But if Benno is using five times more muscle to throw that, that's not going to help everybody. Because mm-hmm. there have been times where, I think I've talked about this, but I sometimes struggle because I don't know when someone is throwing more spin than me because of technique and when they're throwing more spin because of me, because of something they have that I don't, whether it's like muscle mass or whatever like makes someone have a 45 inch vertical and me a 30 inch (laughs) vertical or like why someone can throw a 99 mile per hour fastball, but other people can't, even if they're professionals. So like not knowing that information, it makes it hard to decide who to model yourself after because if I model myself after Benno and then maybe I could perfectly replicate his throwing form, but I'm not as strong as him. And that that might be completely wrong. Like it might be all technique for those people. That's I'm like literally saying I don't know. But at least I can look at Dirty Harry and be like, 
I don't think you're far stronger than me. Like you probably are. Cause I do think he's like trained in Bruce Lee martial arts. So <laughs> like, I don't, I don't mean to take it the wrong way, but most of the people I look at that are great throwers are just clearly bigger and stronger than me. So I can't rule out the possibility that that is a factor for them. So I want to look at people who don't seem clearly bigger and stronger than me and figure out what they're doing differently. But counterpoint, Daniel, I think throws a lot of tension. Like when I watch him, he winds up, his, yep. Yeah. For a big throw, like he slowly winds up. I can see all of his muscles flexed and then he throws it. And then, you know, we picked him as the best mm-hmm. clock throw. So that kind of throws me off. But My at the same time, like he could throw a hundred RPM even more than that. Which is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but I did, I did reach out to Dirty Harry and ask him about his throwing technique. And he said what you are saying, independent of you, which is he said, or at least the most important thing is like, there's a certain amount of tension, whatever it is. But then when he throws at the end of his throw, he basically unleashes all the power and just at the very last possible moment. moment. So for instance, like I tell people, I use every muscle in my body basically when I throw. And I think, you know, my pre-Dirty Harry technique was all those muscles were engaged the entire throw. <laughs> now using the Dirty Harry technique, all those muscles are engaged only at the last part of the throw when I'm really whipping back. Yep. And that definitely added about 30 RPM to my throw. We should do an experiment. When I come visit you for Christmas, we should measure a throw at the start and at the end. And I should clicker train you for like five of those days. We definitely should do that. And I think it would help with you being there. But I have done that experiment like 25 times where I go out with the disc, the Z meter, which measures the spin. And I try every which way to get more spin. And a lot of times I see 30, 40, 50 RPM gains, but they don't necessarily last. And I don't know why it doesn't last. Like probably I just lose focus or lose the memory or like don't, I need to regroove. I need to build yep. a new throw. That's and where not. I feel like your tennis or the tennis guy you're talking about could be a party trick. Like, I don't know if it contributes to long-term gains. Yeah. But I do think there are things in the tennis book that make me want to approach it differently. Because I do think when I've been trying to throw more spin, it's almost like I'm building a Jenga tower where I'm like, okay, like first add piece A. Okay, that added 10 RPM. Now let's add B on top of that. And I keep just adding blocks until it all falls apart because I can't keep all those things in my head at the same time. So... I do think already, for instance, the Dirty Harry is more like the focusing on the seams. Like all I'm going to think about is that tense moment at the very end of the throw and everything else is kind of irrelevant. And it helps like, but it's also interesting. And I wish I knew how good my Z meter is and like how, if there's any variance and like how it performs. Because there are days where we go out and I'm like, wow, I'm throwing 925 today. I didn't even know I could throw that far. And I'm feeling great. And then like a week later, I'm like, I'm maxing out at 820. And I don't know (laughs) how, like, what's the difference? Is it because too cold outside? But I'm getting a new fangled Z meter from a disc golf company that's doing me a solid by making a freestyle disc spin measure. I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm curious. I want to like run some comparisons between the two to see if I learned anything from that. But like, what do you think about that? Like how much of throwing spin is environmental? Like a lot. The disc so Ben and I talk about this all the time when we're together and we're throwing. Yeah. His, I remember this very specific moment where at beach weekend and he's like, the humidity is perfect for throwing right now. And like, yeah. as soon as he said that, I like, I was like, I know exactly what you mean. It's like the disc and me are just like one for that moment. And we're just like working together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly when it's cold, I just find it harder all around. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is grip, which is like a disc golf thing for sure. Right. There's some great phrase that Carlton Howard told me. I can't remember what it was, but like something along the lines of grip is everything. And yeah, I noticed that. I do think, you know, I've complained on the podcast before about how people complain about pro slick and throwing it. And I think that's nonsense because I can throw it perfectly fine with a pro slick. But lately I've been thinking, okay, I can throw it fine and my accuracy is the same, but there are times where I feel like my spin is less because I can feel the disc slipping (laughs) for like split moments. And it's, it's especially extreme for certain things. So for instance, the flick and the forehand Mac, I find far harder with pro slick because I do think I don't have enough friction because it really just comes off that one finger and there's almost just not enough friction on it to counteract the slickness of the disc. But it's hard for me to know. Like the sample size of one is my big challenge in life (laughs) as I'm trying to figure things out, but I only have myself as a sample. And there's too many variables to know when changes I'm making are working or not. (laughs) But grips are great going to what Benno or going to talking about Benno. Benno uses a completely different grip than basically every other freestyle in the world, which is instead of having his fingers curled around the disc, like a handshake grip, he has his fingers flat against the disc. Like I'm trying to give an analogy. Like if you're doing... If you're covering your eyes like you're playing peekaboo, that's how his hand is on the disc when he throws it. And I've I've tried it and I got to the point where I could throw the same that way, but I never got more spin that way. I think grip is similar to like sword fighting. So there's like a bunch of like Star Wars. we can all relate to, I guess. (laughs) I was going to use a Star Wars analogy, but this is like really like off, but like the way you hold a sword when you're like sort of like there's offensive grips and there's a defensive grip. like the most obvious one is like do you hold the sword so it's facing up or facing down when you hold the handle Mm -hmm. and the one when it's down is really defensive and i think the benno grip is like a power throw where it's all about maximizing friction but it has way less consistency because they talk about this in disc golf too where when you let go of the disc in disc golf if you make it come off one singular point of your hand every time, it's more accurate and it's more consistent. But that means you have like less friction on the disc at the end. So that is interesting because I do think if I listed the best throwers in the world in terms of spin, like Pavel, Daniel, and Benno, A, they all like switch into spin mode. Like most of the time they throw 85% of their max spin. And then every now and then they throw max spin and there's like a wind up and you can tell they're throwing <laughs> you max in. And I think it comes to your point a little bit, which is the max spin is always 
a little bit wilder. And so most of the time they default to something a little bit more controlled. But then also I think there's an element of it's that much work to throw max spin. And so no one wants to do it every single time. <laughs> do you think, I think that's right? A, do you do you experience that? Yeah. I think there's a difference between throwing as hard as you can and throwing max spin. Like hmm. I have my default throw that I throw as hard as I can every time, but my max spin throw has like it's like the pitcher when there's someone on base, they switch their wind up, right? Because you gotta you can't have a super long wind up when there's someone on base. Mm-hmm. It's like that. Like it just takes too long to do my max spin throw every time. I see what you mean. I think that's fair because there is, that's another interesting point though about throwing more spin is everyone I know who throws max spin has a long wind up when they're doing it. <laughs> I mean, Daniel's a great example. Like he holds the disc with two hands and like uses his other hand to get a stronger, more wrenched grip. Or then like Pavel just almost like stutter steps coming towards <laughs> you. Like he's about to punch you in the face and just rips it. So that's definitely interesting. But another thing that's also just crazy to think about is half the people I know throw max spin, throw backhand across their body and the other half throws it behind their body. And I don't know what's better. Whenever someone explains to me the across the body, I'm like, that sounds way better. It seems like you have way more leverage, but it's also going to your point, I think much less controlled, but the fact that some people like Daniel can throw it behind their body with so much spin keeps me invested in the behind the body throw. Daniel's max spin throw goes in front of his body. Does it? Yeah, it does. I guess you're right. We were talking about it when he visited. Oh, I don't know if I ever really thought about that, but most of the time he doesn't throw it in front of his body. No, it's only the max spin throw. So maybe that's the right answer. <laughs> Dave Murphy throws it in front of his body. Pavel throws it in front of his body. Dirty Harry. Not really Benno though, right? No, Benno doesn't. What about Vu Vunder? Vu Vunder might do it in front of his body too. His is like in a third category. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, it starts in front and it like ends in back. The, uh, the basketball player's name. He has that kind of physique. Like bas- like Wim frisbee Yama, just changes yeah. into a different sport at that level of physique. <laughs> Who is basically like, not a human being. <laughs> it's like what I think about in the old Olympic days when they're like, oh, the gods would come to the Olympics and compete. I feel like this is how it explained Vu, which is dirty, hairy, looks like he's throwing effortlessly and has 995. Vu looks like he's throwing effortlessly and like he's throwing it as hard as anyone has ever thrown in the world somehow simultaneously. Like it both looks so easy and so powerful. Like especially his overhand wrist flip, it is terrifying. Also with Vu and Dirty Harry's too, they're like some of the only throws I know that do this. You hear that they're still accelerating after it leaves their hand. <laughs> Like it makes the different kinds of sounds when they throw it, which is nuts to me. But I wonder, you know, like if you watch pro disc golfers throw, it almost sounds like a jet when it leaves their hand. It makes that almost like the whoosh sound, whoosh sound. I feel like that's how it should sound when we throw a freestyle disc. Like it makes a sound. I think when most people throw it, but it's more like <laughs> the sound of your hand. I see. But I want to hear the whoosh when you throw. But maybe the whoosh is just from the transversing that's that's a word that maybe doesn't exist yeah. maybe but like it might be from like the speed not from the spin but still yeah 
maybe it's like sound is inefficient. Like if it's making sound, you're losing energy to it. Maybe it's better. You know, that is true. I think about that a lot because Dirty Harry's throw is silent. And so is Vu's for the most part. But then other people's throws are really loud. Like Pavel's throw is really loud. But just factually, sound is inefficiency. I remember like learning very young that the Japanese subway system was silent and how that was so impressive. (laughs) And in New York, it's like the loudest, most horrible (laughs) sound you've ever heard. So I've thought about that and I have mixed feelings about that because I feel like the soundless throw is so many steps beyond what I can do that it's not a good goal. Like right now, my goal should be as loud as possible (laughs) and silence. We'll hope for silence in some distant future. But yeah, turning to any other things that I've been trying to do to get more spin. I mean, it seems like if I do everything correctly, I can break 900 consistently, but I can't consistently do everything correctly. And that's the problem. We're going to, we're going to, I want to see the impact of one week of clicker training. I, I mean, I'll be optimistic about it, but not many people. It's okay. Here's what's so frustrating is I do think the difference between 850 and 920 is so massive <laughs> and it's so rare for anyone to throw it over 900 because even my Duke guys, Will and Brendan are also like maybe even maybe more consistent than I am. Like they are also like maxing out around the 900 range, but not that consistently. So I don't even, I don't know. Like one thing that's just weird that that would be where so many people max out. We're three very different shaped humans with very different strength levels and very different experience levels. And somehow that's just our limit. There must be some, there is a yeah. part of me that, like there's a part of me that thinks it's all baseball and like some people can throw 99 and some people can't, but like almost everyone who's really good can get into the early nineties. Not that many people can get to the high nineties and maybe that's just how it is in freestyle. But I don't know. But here's another weird example. My staker used to be automatic 995, mm-hmm. which again is the maximum amount of the Z meter. Like I didn't have to think about it. Now suddenly I can't do it anymore. It's like 980 <laughs> is a struggle to get to. And then on the flip side, my chicken wing, which is similar conceptually to the staker, I used to not be able to break 900 with it. And now that is closer to 995 than my staker. So it's all just completely random. I can't make any sense of it. <laughs> and I don't know what to do about it. Yep. I think I've told you this before. I hope you can save me. <laughs> I told you this before, but I feel like the way everyone throws right now is just not the best way. Like there is another way that's significantly better. So when we bought the Z meter, I emailed the guy directly because he like the site was down. And he yeah. said an amateur disc golfer can max this out every time. It's like, it's not that useful for them. And I'm like, if an amateur disc golfer can hit 995 every time, we should be able to hit 995 every time. But here's the thing. If we were talking a year ago when my staker was always 995, I would tell you, if you let me throw it 200 feet, (laughs) I can max it out every time. But the hard part is bringing that power to a six foot throw. But I don't know. Also, I don't know what the disc mechanics are, but you'd think that there's however many freestylers there are. I can only think of 10 people who can throw at 995 in any way, right? 
anyone with a Mac? So without Mac's without a, a Mac category, okay. yeah, yeah, I I can't throw it nine nine five without a Mac. Yeah, I can only do it with full body throws. Think Matt Gothier honest- can throw a nine nine five without a Mac. I I don't know. I don't honestly, think, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, even I think Pavel can throw a nine nine five, but I think even him, like most of the time, when I remember, like the one time we did it, it was more like nine six five nine seven five. But then when he wants to, he could throw nine nine five. I think. Daniels is 995. It's just 995, 995, 995. But that's not that many people. And if you think about how, like, how many times have we thrown a disc? A hundred thousand? I'm over a million. Right? A million. You think we, have I thrown it? I had, I've thrown it more than you have, right? I think so. You think a million times? Yeah. I'm going to do some math. I was doing the math math right now. Like, I think I hit it back in like 2019. I hit a million. Okay, we're doing it right now. So how many times do you think you throw it in an hour? When I'm solo practicing, it's probably 120. I was about to say the same thing because I think, and I would actually just generalize that. I think plenty of times when I'm practicing, are we, let's, I'm it's counting more, just more than two throws. a minute. What am I thinking? I think it's more like four a minute. So it's. No, no, but like, let's, let's also mix in okay, jamming. So then. So like, I think it'd be pretty normal to throw it like twice a minute. And like, surely we played. 10,000 hours by yeah. now. We played like 15 years. Yeah, so that's 1.2 million. <laughs> so how there's so many freestylers, probably all of them have thrown the disc over a million times and so few people can throw it that hard. I don't know. It's just interesting. Although I will put throwing in the baby walking category, which is I don't know how to throw, so I don't really tell <laughs> anyone how to throw it. But they all get better. I think it, yeah. everyone gets better. It's going to be like the thing where once we see the person with the better throwing technique, everyone will level up. Yeah. I was going to make a Rick and Morty <laughs> analogy, but I don't think it's going to work. Um, okay. I think let's save our other brainstorming mm-hmm. for later. Is there anything else on throwing we should talk about? The last thing I was going to say is when I was talking to someone else about throwing, this, this is very advanced, but I think there are... Like intuitively, it's like you relax and then you snap. But I think there's actually two relaxes and two snaps. So it's even way more complicated. Yeah, you were telling me about this. Like yeah. the wind, like the windup is so important that you could relax and then snap into your windup. So it's like you're counter throwing. Like imagine you're doing the throw, but in reverse. And so you have like a relax and a snap for that, just for the windup. And then you're already wound up, but now you're relaxed. So you have like you're like wound up and relaxed at the same time instead of the Daniel method where you like tension yourself to wind up. Well, so sample size one, this really worked for me because when I was trying the dirty Harry technique of exploding at the very end, and that was basically it that added like whatever 30 RPM to my throw. Then when I added this two point tension, I don't know what to call it. Like two point explosion. (laughs) If I started with a tight grip and like, a fair amount of strength started the throw loosened up through the entire motion and then snapped hard at the end. That helped a lot. And my theory is something like I needed the tension at the beginning to set the course in a consistent way, but then I needed to be loosey goosey in it so that all the power would snap back at the end. So like that's sort of what you're saying, right? And I don't know, it worked for me pretty well, but I'm still kind of figuring out what, I don't have a better word for t- than tension. Like, I don't like that word because it sort of has a negative connotation, but like strength, power, whatever. But I'm still figuring out like what needs to have power in it, like what muscles specifically, 
how much tension I'm kind of working out all of that. But I do think this two-step approach is what you should be experimenting with if you want to add spin, which is kind of tension at the beginning, loose through the motion, snap hard at the end. And we're going to sound really foolish when someone figures out how to throw it correctly. <laughs> and we're going to sound so just old, not knowing what to do. But you reminded me, I feel like, of one other thing. Oh, like one other thought I have about it, just in general. It's like in disc golf, it's all about getting your whole body into the throw. And we just don't do that mm-hmm. for the most part. <laughs> no. And like one thing I do tell people when they're struggling, which I think is kind of like a training step, but it's such a good training step that probably most people should just stop there is, you know, put your weight on your front foot and don't move your lower body because most people's attempts to move their lower body are hurting them more than they're helping them. And just like having your, like I'll tell people who are really struggling, basically just stand on one foot, just like stand (laughs) on your right foot, throw with your right arm. And that helps a lot of people. But I do think ultimately the right answer is to get your lower body involved. And the question is how, and again, when I was kind of like having my dirty, hairy renaissance, even though ironically he told me his lower body isn't involved at all, which again, question whether (laughs) if he added his lower body, what kind of crazy throw he'd have. Um, He gave me a good reason why he doesn't think he uses it, which is he says he can throw as much spin sitting in a chair. (laughs) I was like, that's a really good point. If If that's true, then you're right. You're not using your lower body. But I do think it has to be part of it. And I sort of found it a way, I sort of found a way to get my lower body involved in my backhand. And it was adding a lot of spin to my throw. But longer wind up, way more energy. I was like super sore the next day and like my abs, which is like super rare for me freestyling. And then also, and this I've always known about my staker and my chicken wing, the risk of me pulling my back out in some way, shape or form is far higher. (laughs) So like even today at ultimate of all things, sometimes we play on a smaller field. It's still like long, but I throw as my pull a staker, basically just to show off. And I like pulled my back out just a hair. <laughs> and like, so on the one hand, I feel like like good about that because it means I'm translating a lot of power from other parts of my body. It's not just my arms and shoulder but probably there's something wrong if it's hurting my back, but that's not obvious to me. I don't know. Lots of ideal sports movements will damage Walking your body. Walking hurts your body. So. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know. Um, the Zen mystic freestyler me wants to say it should always be, if you're doing it right, nothing should hurt, but <laughs> that's not I don't how know, a lot of things work. in freestyle. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things in freestyle. If you're doing it right, it probably, it hurts a little bit. The number of times I tell people in the morning, I'm like, does that feel uncomfortable? All right, you're doing it right. <laughs> Could just get used well, to one it. One more data point. Okay. Probably means. Well, it probably means most of all that I need to build some core strength. But yeah, one more say? data point about the legs is Jeremy Colling, who's like one of the best disc golfers in the world, and he's a forearm yeah. specialist. He says that when he throws with no legs, like no wind up at all, it's exactly the same as when he has a like a steps into his throw and he's like i just do it because it's comfortable but it gives me no benefit that's interesting the only pushback i'd have to that is if it has to do with the mechanics of that yeah so i think are we what i mean if we could not maybe we're doing the forehand right now where our legs don't matter but if we changed everything up then the legs would matter and we'd throw twice as much spin 
Yeah, because there's something about the forehand that doesn't really because your arm is so mm-hmm. bent and like it is kind of so loosey goosey that it's hard to imagine like the power because you kind of think about it like I don't know what the word is but like your body has to be kind of one piece so that what's happening in your yeah. legs can have an effect on your hand and there's something about the forearm at least the way I think about it that is so disconnected from your legs that it's hard to imagine it mattering but at the same time that's just something I believe that probably someone can figure out how to get your <laughs> legs involved and maybe the forehand would be the best throw although speaking of things that hurt you my understanding from the disc golf world is that the forehand will break your yeah. arm eventually. and it's the same it's as like a uh, major league pitcher yeah like you will need tommy john <laughs> surgery at some point yeah i don't know if anyone has ideas about how to throw more spin send us send them our way but i think when you get here and now we have more people too who are interested in this i think we could really do some studies and technique to see what we could figure out okay is that I it i think that's it all right somehow we're still on our every two week schedule thanks for getting through the dota section of the podcast at the end of the day you have to realize ryan and i only talk every two weeks and it just happens to be <laughs> a podcast so sometimes you're just gonna have to hear us catch up with each other but we appreciate people who are listening Hope this is making some small impact in the freestyle world. And uh, send us your feedback, your comments, whatever, at clockercounter at gmail.com. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.